Hey everyone, welcome to the Lancaster Golf Performance Podcast. Each week on the show, we talk golf at a high level. Whether it be short game, putting, ball striking, and biomechanics, mental game, nutrition, or your favorite players, we cover it. Some weeks we will have guests on, either high level players or coaches, and other weeks we will break down important parts of building a high level of performance on and off the golf course. For context, Lancaster Golf Performance comes from a deep family history of amateur, NCAA, and professional golf experience. We are comprised of three brothers, two of us made it to the NCAA Division I, while one still pursues the game to the highest level, and the other is a certified swing biomechanist with Scott Cokes, and a certified health and nutrition practitioner with the Paul Check Institute. We have been lucky to be trained by PGA Tour coaches, and it's our goal to get all of our students to achieve their highest potential. If you want to get in touch with us, have a discussion, a free consult, or work with us exclusively, message us on Instagram at Lancaster Golf Performance or at LancasterGolfPerformance.com. I hope you enjoy the show as much as we do hosting it. Let's get started. I, I'm just imagining like a little Chris Selfridge. And like how you got into <laughs> it and, and, and what your environment was like to kind of get you get you into the love of the game. Yeah, um, well, I, I live in quite a small town in Northern Ireland and we have a, a really good golf course within walking distance. So, you know, that played a part. I think my dad played. So there was immediate connection to the game with him going to the golf course and me, you know, hitting a ball or going to the driving range when I was, you know, seven, eight years old. Kind of, I played a lot of football and then, we would play golf on the football pitch too, just a group of children. So that would sort of get me into golf as well. And I think as I sort of, you know, maybe got to nine or 10, whenever I, you know, could actually make contact with the golf ball properly and stuff like that. I was growing up in very much the Tiger Woods era. So I was born in 92. So this would have been like 2000, 2001. Mm. And like Tiger, Tiger was such an elite worldwide superstar. Well, he still is now. I'm saying that as if he's not, but I think golf, you know, I just connected so much with like loving Tiger Woods and watching Tiger Woods and playing the Tiger Woods games on the, you know, the, the old PlayStation or I don't know if it was PS2 back then or whatever yeah, it was, yeah. but um, it's like PS5 now in it. But um, yeah, I just think all those things connecting and then growing up around other young golfers who also played. Yeah. And those were like, you know, all the factors kind of coming together. I mean, uh, it's funny you talk about the Tiger Woods games. Uh, my brother, he's been playing 2005 Tiger Woods, like the throwback ones. Really? Because um, those were like some <laughs> that got us into like playing at a high level. Um, man, no. Yeah, the, the one thing that's interesting too, like we had, and you you probably, because uh, his game has gone so downhill, but you made fun of, probably made fun of like Mike Weir in the past. <laughs> but he was like our, our hero <laughs> growing up, right? um and uh yeah of course yeah but i noticed like i mean one thing that's with ireland and something we always wish with canada that we have more and we're starting to get that more is just like the high level players that are like on tour so like guys like rory mackerel yeah. Graham mcdowell darren clark um i mean there's other big ones from ireland like how much did those guys influence you to play the game too yeah, well, I mean, the early days, it was all Tiger Woods. And then whenever I was in my teenagers, Harrington was winning majors, wasn't he? Um, yeah. And then, Roger, yeah, yeah. By, the time, by the time I was 18, um, GMAC was winning majors and Darren Clark came soon behind. And then by the time I was a serious golfer in college, McElroy was dominating the world. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they obviously played a part even subconsciously. Absolutely. It's mm-hmm. funny you mentioned Mike Weir there. Obviously, um, 
your brother going to college with him, you know, he, Mike was his idol and kind of like make fun of it. Actually, uh, Matt and Mike, we were hard too. So it's, it's warranted. Like, yeah. 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 So <laughs> 2017, we were both playing a European tour event. And I remember like being on the putting green beside him and being like, that's Mike Weir, like starstruck. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. <laughs> funny. He's a small yeah. guy, eh? Yeah. Yeah. He's nice. He was pleasant. You know, it was just like, Oh, you know, hi Mike. You know? Yeah. He was yeah. a nice guy. So, oh, so you had, you had words yeah. with him. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I just I spoke to him briefly, and um, actually the next day I sort of made eye contact with him again, and was like, "Oh, good morning." And he was like, "Good morning." It was quite pleasant. It wasn't a conversation, but right. it's just kind of like after hearing so much about him for five years with your brother, it's like, "Wow, that's actually Mike Weir." <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I yeah, mean, it's interesting. I remember he did a clinic at uh, Hamilton Golf, the course where we remember at, and just seeing him like sh- shape shots. It's crazy. Like, I mean, how. I, I don't know. We always had this thing where it's like, oh, why did Mike Weir fall off in his career? I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. it's so difficult though. At, when you actually understand like at, at golf at a higher level, it's so difficult to keep that level, especially through like the injuries that he had. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's, that, that's actually crazy that, that you kind of rub shoulders with him. So like, um, I guess now playing, yeah. playing Northern Ireland, did you, uh, did you ever rub shoulders with some guys that were at the higher level kind of growing up? whether it be like you saw someone on a range or, or you made friends with any of them? No, not really. Um, you know, Rory was obviously ahead of me by a few years and I guess I kind of grew up a little bit with Shane Lowry, you know, would have played a lot of the amateur tournaments and played with him and, and stuff like that. But again, he was, he was older than me, but um, right. not, not really. As yeah. much as I'd like to say I, I played with Rory and I knew him, I don't, but um, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I guess, man, for you, like uh, playing as a junior golfer, when did you kind of realize that you wanted to go NCAA Division One? I? I noticed too, like you, you were uh, like captain of the under eighteen junior Ryder Cup teams. I think it's under eighteen, under sixteen. Um, so you were playing at a high level. Um, but like, was there any age where you're like, I want to get to the NCAA, go professional? When did you kind of start to realize like I'm kind of getting better than most? Yeah. Um, no, I, I never. I never made the. I never made any of the Ryder Junior Ryder Cup teams. I was captain of the Irish Under 18 team. That's what I meant. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it wasn't Junior Ryder Cup. I wish it was. But um, okay, okay. yeah, it's kind of. It was a guy at my club, right, Paul O'Kane. He went to East Tennessee State University, and he was four or five years older than me. So I always kind of looked up to him. You know, whenever I was 12 or 13, he was like 17. Mm. I think. He right. was like getting ready to go to NCAA and he was obviously way better than me by being older. He went on to play for, you know, the Irish under 18 teams and the Irish senior teams and all that stuff. So I just think I looked up to him so much and as I got older, sort of knowing that he went and, you know, that, you know, obviously, you know, leaving Northern Ireland to go live in America for four years at 18 is quite the big step um, yeah. as it is for anyone, no matter where you're from. But I guess knowing that he did it, and that probably made it slightly more comfortable and, Knowing personally about his experience as well and speaking to him all the time, summers and all that stuff. And obviously he had a lot of good things to say about it. So I'm, I'm sure that played a big role in why I went in the end. Mm. I mean, that's, that's crazy to think. Cause like the jump for me from Toronto, Ontario to Michigan, which is a five hour car ride felt yeah. for me. And like, yeah. you guys are, are traveling across the country and you probably only get to see your family like yeah. once a year. Right. When, yeah. Well, you seen them at Christmas summer. in the summer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I sort of decided I wanted to go and then decided I didn't want to go and was all over the place. You know, you're 18 years of the age and um, you think you know it all, but let's face it, you know very little. Yeah. But, um, 
So it's it kind of the pull of the familiar. You know, I committed to going. I was going to go to South Alabama and then I, uh, southeastern Louisiana, and it was all over the place. And then I eventually pulled out and didn't want to go and then committed to going to university in Ireland for a year. And then just before I was about to start there at one of the British British under 18 tournament, like British boys, it's called. Mm. The Toledo, Toledo coach was there and I connected with him straight away just with an Irish connection because they've always had Irish players. And right. he was like, hey, come come visit. You know, so I was like, all right, you know, let's do it. And went on an official visit and then was like, right, I want to go here. And even to this day, I was kind of like, look, if I go and I try it for a few months and I don't like it, I can always come home. Mm. So I was like, right, I'm, I'm really going to commit to doing this. So I, I decided to do it. And then I went and you know, there was definitely times where I did want to come home and I didn't like it and being away from your family. And it's just such an unfamiliar territory, completely out of your comfort zone. But, you know, I got through it. And, you know, even the first year, two years, it's still, you know, it was like, cried, I've had enough of this. I'm going home now, especially in the wintertime with all the snow. But um, yeah, I ended up staying four years and it was a life changing experience. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, life changing for sure. I mean, on a personal level and two, just like at a playing level, I mean, you had, you had a fairly distinguished career, like two, two wins. I think you had 12 top five finishes. Um, yeah. So like for you, man, I mean, I was, I was never able to reach that level. Like my, I never really thought about past when I make the NCAA division one. And that was always the, the goal. Um, so like, I, I kind of got there and I'm like, Oh, I've reached my summit and now let's go home kind of thing but for you like yeah. you you went a lot further in the game in that sense so like what yeah. were I mean from a maybe a mental game aspect or just like um I mean because because you talk a lot about mental game with your coach with your with your students uh what yeah. were some, some key things for you on that side of the game to like really propel yourself to that kind of player so you mean as I was in college basically how did I get better firstly yeah, because well, I mean, that's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I'm so hearing. I had a great coach myself and a guy called Johnny Foster. And, you know, we just, we spoke all the time and we had such clear intentions, both technically and on how to train to get better, always competing and constantly gaining confidence. And whenever I was in college, you know, even as I went as a freshman, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I gained confidence really quickly. I remember the first qualifier, you know, you're like, first tournament was in where I can't even remember where it was, but you really want to go. So like, you, you know, the quali- three round qualifier, such a big deal. And I think I went and won by like you know, 10 or 12 shots over three rounds. So like, wow, I just gained confidence really quick. And then by always competing in that environment and sort of feeling like a big fish in a small pond, essentially. Mm. And you just start to get such self-belief and then you create momentum. And then one thing led to another. And even whenever I went home from my first year in Toledo, I, you know, I went straight back home and, I won the Irish Amateur. I won the East of Ireland. And before I went to Toledo, I, I wasn't close to any of these. I wasn't even on the national squads. And then all of a sudden, I was one of the best players in the country one year later. And it was just a confidence thing. I really believed in myself. And I, I think by that stage, I'd, I'd got out of my comfort zone so much. Mm. I'd embraced adversity so much, even just by, you know, going going to college, you know, moving to America, leaving your friends behind and all that stuff, leaving your family. I think... It just sort of grew as a person and then that sort of helped me. Yeah, absolutely. So, it was, I mean, those, uh, those qualifiers can be, they're scary. Like, if, like yeah. especially your first one. I mean, I, I think I finished second or third to last on the team in my first one. Uh, we were playing, we were qualifying for the Purdue tournament. Um, I think, you know, that course, it was a, it's like a 7,500 yard yeah. monster. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I played it every year. Yeah. I, I never got a chance to, thankfully, because I, I think it would have destroyed me, my confidence a little <laughs> bit. Um, yeah. But 
those are, I mean, and that's where it's like, I, I sometimes, uh, I mean, you, you think about, I never really, okay. I never really thought going into the NCAA, what it would feel like when I get there. And it's kind of like a precursor for, for students. If you're like a 16, 17 year old kid to realize that when you do get to the NCAA, you're get ready to be tested. I, I'd say that's the big thing because, um, yeah. I mean, you do have like, how many, how many tournaments would you play in a semester? Like seven or eight, maybe? Uh, I think you played like six in the fall, maybe seven or eight in the spring. Yeah. But it's also, you, if, if you're not, if you're qualifying for every event, you end up playing about 12, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Because those qualifiers are tournaments. I mean, I, I always looked at those. Oh, as big time. Big uh, time. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. And it's just, uh, I mean, it's, you kind of have to go in with this blazing confidence and just, and prepare to, I think. And, and it's realizing that when you get to school, there's this, this segmented schedule that you're going to be on. If you are disciplined, yep. um, if you're, yep. if you're not going to be there to just party and have a good time. Um, yep. I think, I think routine and discipline is, is the biggest thing I would say. Um, yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. You just build such, you build such resilience and you really have to, you're just going to, you're going to have to overcome so much adversity, you know? And, um, I think even just being in the group environment with all the guys and, you know, some days you might only be able to do two or three hours quality practice. And back before I went to college, it was like, well, if you only did two or three hours, you think you weren't enough. But if you make it really competitive and really engaging, it's amazing how much you can get out of that. So Mm. I sort of learned that as I went. And even throughout the four years of college, you know, you're probably only doing about 30 hours a week. And that's fine if it's engaging, intentional and competitive practice. It doesn't have to be a waste of time. So... But I mean, everyone's different, aren't they? So, yeah. Well, I mean, I find too, though. It, that's a that's a similar line that our friend Johnny said. I, I don't know if you know Johnny Trevally. We we had him in a podcast a couple ago, and yeah, Johnny yeah, was saying, Mike like, talked about him yeah, like John, Johnny was just saying how with my practice, I don't just do it to go through the motions. And then what I noticed about him is that he has other factors in his life that contribute to on golf course success. And one is just fitness and nutrition. He takes really good yep. care of himself. Um, so I think that's, that's part of the key with, with like getting to the next level at the NCAA level is you have to not just think about what I can do to contribute to be a better golfer, but also what are other life factors that are important? I mean, good friends, proper health and nutrition, yeah. if you get yourself to that level, it sounds very cliche, very generic, but it's, it's true. But it's so great. Confidence, self-esteem, even feeling good about yourself, feeling strong, hitting the ball further, mm-hmm. dressing good, dressing nice, feeling, you know, feeling like feeling like the big fish out there, you know, they all add to confidence and all create momentum. And mm. one thing leads to another, you know, it's why you say dressing nice. That's maybe, maybe why Mike always wore pants, tried to dress like a tour pro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, did. he refused to wear shorts. Didn't he? I know. I know. I don't I mean, think I've ever seen his legs. Yeah. Maybe I know. He, he finally wears, he finally wears shorts and they just be bright white. <laughs> <laughs> he probably be mad. He's, he, he'll listen to this. And he'll be mad that I said that, but it actually, I, I actually think, like like the way Mike dressed added to his confidence on the golf course because he always felt like a tour. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. When Mike when Mike was confident, um, especially short game, dude. The way Mike spoke about his short game in Putnam College, he, he felt so confident, and even the way he acted around putting, you know, it was just you really learn a lot from it. You know, he he really I'd put him up there with you know his short game in Putnam whenever he was on. I haven't seen any. I haven't seen many people better. I don't want to say he's the best I've ever seen, but right. he's up there. It was really, really impressive, you know? That's it's pretty about long game, though. I've seen a few loose long game shots over the years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's interesting about Mike's putting and short game because I always I always give him shit and say, hey, man, my putting's better than you. Like, always, I will say it to yeah. you. 
And and we're us, us three brothers. We kind of give each other that. But I mean, that's you. You talk about your one friend who was seventeen, a little bit ahead of you. That's that's yeah. that's so important to have that those kind of influences. Like you have kind of that uh, that chirping mentality with each other. It's like I'm better than you at this. Yeah. Um, come get me, kind of thing. That's that's interesting to hear. I, I should give him a little more uh, credit when he talks about his putting. Um, but, <laughs> but man, yeah, it's well, interesting. Yeah. yeah used to beat me a lot. He took a lot of money off me and um, even chipping comps and stuff. That was, that was the one thing Mike definitely had the leg up on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's a, that's a good little note to make though, just like on, on practicing, like having competition in it. That's so key. Um, taking money oh, off each other. I mean, that, that helps your confidence when you get out into the golf course, man, just, uh, just curious. So like with uh, kind of taking it to a different direction, you ended up playing Toledo for four years and then went to the challenge tour, played, played probably different mini tour events in the European, European circuit. Yeah. So what was that experience yep. like? Cause I've, I've never had that experience of being a traveling professional. Um, yeah, tell me, it was, um, that, yeah. So, you know, turned pro right after college and was fortunate to sign with a good management company and get starts in the challenge tour. And again, as I, my, you know, my self-confidence is really high and I got off to a really good start. You know, my, my first full season as a pro, I never missed the cuts. I was doing really well. Um, had a, had a really good year. Didn't quite didn't get my European Tour card via the Challenge Tour because I only played twelve events. Because you can only get a certain amount of invites, and then I got quite a few top tens and stuff. So I ended up playing twelve events, but um, wasn't enough to finish in the top twenty in the rankings, obviously. Um, so I went to Q School and was doing well at Q School, and then warming up for round three, I was in like fifth place. So look, looking good for getting my European Tour card. And I still a long way to go, but I was I was buzzing with confidence. I tore a ligament in my wrist warming up. Whoa. So, yeah, that, that oh. wasn't ideal, to say the least. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, and it, unfortunately, it happened twice more in the next year. Um, once by a, a freak incident, and then once by me rushing back by mismanaging it. Um, I did it again in Kazakhstan, where I rushed back early. And, well, I, I say I rushed back early. I rushed back probably two weeks before I should have, but I did feel like I was fine to play. Mm. But I hadn't like stress tested it in like, you know, into the green rough, you know, I'd stress tested it like in off the fairway and hitting off tees and stuff, you know, but um, yeah, a little bit of adrenaline going at it too hard caused it. But yeah, but anyway, challenge tour is incredibly tough and I lost confidence very quickly mm. from underperforming and obviously the injuries held me back big time too. But um, it was a downward spiral for me because I just sort of lost my way. I, I forgot to do the things I was good at. I got too caught up in the others around me. I knew my subconsciously, I knew other guys were better than me. And then that, that made me feel worse about my game. And, and then obviously I was practicing the wrong way. I was chasing technique, um, mm. all these other things. And I, I just sort of lost my identity a little bit as a player and inevitably I got worse. And then by 2018, I had lost my challenge to a card because I, I, I played well in 2015 and even better in 2016. Mm. This all came 2017 when I lost my card. Right. And then 2018, I lost my card. I had to move down to the Euro Pro Tour mm. and I played like six events. It was still, I still had tendonitis in my elbow, in my arm. Um, but I, I was kind of like going through the motions at that stage. I was so, so far gone that, uh, yeah, I, I eventually quit and went into a, you know, a different line of work. So I um, worked in an office for a few months and then ended up getting into caddying and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a, it's been quite the roller coaster. but, um, yeah, seriously. Yeah. It's just, you know, looking back now, it's, it's, it's kind of like hindsight's wonderful thing. You know, you realize what you did wrong and you know, who's to say that 
if I did things differently, things might have been different. I, you know, I don't know, but um, I just know that that's that's the path I went down, and I definitely, you know, I, I roadblocked myself mentally, mm. and then I just got away from the things that I was um, good at and lost confidence, and, right? And it eventually fell out of love with the game, you know. Mm. Well, it's I mean, it's it's interesting. I think there's a lot of we hear a lot about the success stories just watching the PGA Tour, and you see kind of the straight line a lot of guys take where it's like no injuries, yep. proper people around them, proper training, and then they get there. Uh, there's there's a whole other sect of golfers that go through tumultuous times. Um, and it's all, it's all what we learn, right, and, and what we bring back. And it's interesting to see where you're at now. It's like you're working with Mind Factor, um, and you're, you have kind of your, your students, and you're, you're helping them through, yeah. and then caddying will be a big part of that as well in the future, yeah. um, which is cool that you're, you're giving that back. I mean, so – you're, you're kind of there now. I mean, if just, just on the, on the physical fitness side of things where your wrist was, do you think there was anything that was, that could have been prevented during, during that time? Or was that more of just like your, your body kind of broke down because some bodies break down? What, what, what do you think uh-huh. it was? Well, the first time it happened was a freak incident. You know, it just, it just happened, but um, I wasn't doing much physical fitness um, in 2015, 2016 for golf. You know, I was doing a little bit. I was doing explosive deadlift work and stuff, but I wasn't at tournaments like, you know, going through vigorous warm-ups and stuff. So maybe if I had warmed it up properly, it wouldn't happen. But again, yeah. most most guys, you know, aren't, aren't, I wasn't massively into it. I was still doing my bit. You know, I was still doing, still doing what I had to do, very much retaining while I was on the road. But um, I'm sure there's things I could have done differently, especially in 2017, working with um, a physio team. You know, I, part of the sport NI and, and team art and stuff, I had free access to physio and yeah, I wasn't doing it enough and um, just just wasn't going about things the right way and just kind of was um, probably just wasn't, didn't have the right mindset to sort of deal with it. Um, I was just kind of always... It's kind of hard to explain. I was always worried about it and maybe not addressing the issue enough. You know? mm. Yeah. And it was kind of like I was doing a lot of grip strength stuff, a lot of a lot of eccentric movements in the gym to strengthen my arm, you know, you know, five second, uh, you know, lowering deadlifts and pull ups and stuff. A lot of, a lot of grip strength stuff, forearm strength stuff, which did help. But um, I guess I get an insight. Maybe I should have did more, but who knows? Yeah. Well, you know? I mean, and it sounds like, I mean, it's tough to say like um, on the mental side of things, what, what, what it could have been done differently or what you'd recommend to students. Because I, I get the sense from you, the way you would break down a student's mentality, your mentality is based on um, just specifically what the person's going through and, and what that person's tendencies are and what they need to hear. Um, I mean, yeah, and, and it's very tough to give like a general advice on mental game on ways you're going to practice because everyone is built differently. Right. I, I find that's, yeah. if, if I were to curtail a perfect plan for myself, I'd be like, okay, I'm someone who avoids the technical aspect of the game completely. Biomechanics. I, I, I don't think of, I think about mental game all the time strategy. <laughs> Um, so I could, I could do with yeah. doing a little bit that, right. Um, so I mean, for you with your students, is there like a, is there a system that you kind of use to break down their mental games, um, their ways to practice yeah. stuff like that? Yeah, of course. Of course. So, um, obviously everyone's different, so it is figuring out what works for them, but I sort of try to adopt like a no limits mindset, which is the belief, the capacity to constantly improve at your own margin. Okay. So it always, it's always about making your training engage and having consequences, making it fun and challenging at the same time. 
And especially with the more elite players that, you know, have big goals to play on tour, it's, you know, sort of understanding that it won't always be that enjoyable, but there needs to be the satisfaction progression element to it to create momentum. So then you're very much in the learning zone. So just to give an example of that, you know, in golf, if you're, if you're doing a drill that um, you're doing proximity, you're using 10 short game shots and you're, you're getting your average proximity, uh, sometimes it can be really testing. You know, you're hitting the bunker shot off the downslope, you type in, that's one of the hard shots. And you catch a little bit thin and you hit it to 18 feet and it completely messes up your average proximity because one bad shot really hurts that in that game. That's not always fun, but you need to encourage yourself and you need to really say to yourself, right, a lot of people would have given up by now, but I'm stronger than that. Mm. You know, build that resilience, constantly get out of your comfort zone, embrace adversity, all these cliches, you know, it's comfort zone stuff, but really sort of get basically your attitude and applications. The only things we can control so let's really, really get into that and mm. let the outcome take care of itself. It's, um, sort of, it's all about facts, you know, and getting confidence off facts. Right. Always using numbers to measure your practice and at your own margin. You're always comparing yourself to your own previous best in various drills, you know, because if you compare yourself to other people, you can't control that. And then whenever you're, whenever you compete with other people as well, you know, you're very much sort of in the peer pressure, you know. They're not doing it and they're not engaged. You can kind of follow their trend. So um, it's just all about finding the balance. It's pretty like, complicated. No, yeah, but I like this this focus on facts and numbers when you practice because it can be uh, yeah. it can be daunting to, to create practice plans and what you have to do. Um, I mean, that's where really a coach comes in, an effective coach if you're a younger player, say you're 15, 16. I know one uh, one core test. Have you, have you ever heard of the Jensen test? Yeah, I have. Mike used to do it. Putting test. Yeah, so that's something yeah, yeah, yeah. We, would, we would always do. Like, try whenever I was like between zero and two, I knew I knew that I would probably be between about a tour levels putting average to a higher level amateur if I was putting at that level. So it was always mm-hmm. trying to get my numbers down from like ten misses to to two misses. And by the way, people who aren't like, what is the Jensen test? Basically, you hit putts from three feet, four feet, five feet on a straight right to left downhill and left to right. Um, and you hit three putts from each location. So three putts from three feet, three from four, three from five. Um, and you go around and you try to make all of them. I mean, I, I forget the amount of putts that you hit in total, but it's a really testing drill because it, it provides the element of going through your routine. It provides the element of going through like numbers. It's like you're playing a score. So you're thinking about scores you're going through, which is very much like on the golf course. Um, and then you're just in a flow state and you're trying to keep in this consistent flow, keep your mind right. Um, so that's, that's, that's a great golf game, right? So you said proximity, that proximity uh, drill, those are kind of drills that you guys will you give to your students, like different drills to gameify. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do it with them. You know, you do 10, sh- just, it's just we're, keep this pretty simple here. So you get 10 shots, short game, typically we do pretty easy for medium, three hard, you know, typically just, just to get it to 10, you know, unfortunately 10 doesn't divide perfectly by three, mm. but, um, and then we do proximity, you know, so like, you know, you hit it to, hit the easy shot to two feet, change location, change club, and then we're going to the medium shot. Same again, same again, same again. So whenever you hit like a per shot, the example I just gave you, you've caught a bunker shot slightly thin, you've hit it to 18 feet or even 40 feet. That that ruins your proximity so much, but yeah. it gets you so engaged. And it, it's proper challenging, you know, and it's not always fun. But, you know, it's if, if you really want to, you know, adopt the no limits mindset that you can constantly improve, you know, sometimes you just got to dig deep and go for it because golf's hard in tournaments. You need to be prepared for how hard it's going to be. You need to be resilient. Yeah. You know, 
things are going to happen. Golf, golf can bite you. You know, you're, you're playing well and you, uh, you hit it down the middle and you're in a divot or, or, or the wind switches after you flush the perfect eight iron and you hit it over the back into a pot bunker and you make double. That's, that's golf. You need to be resilient. You need to be adaptable and you need to be up for the challenge. Well, and so I, I love, I love that drill Cause that would give like such an indication of if you, if you go out and you're like an 11 green, a 12 green per round kind of guy, that's how many greens you hit or girl. Yeah. Um, I mean, and say you have a bad ball striking day. So let's say you hit eight greens. Now you have 10 short game shots. Um, say of those 10 short game shots with the proximity drill, five of them you, you hit with, within five of them you hit to like 10 feet. I mean, you're going to make now that now you're like, okay, I'm going to make four or five bogeys based on where my short game skills are at. And that, that throws away good rounds just like that. So you have four or five bogeys exactly. coming back to par exactly. is very difficult, you know? Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. But it, it's just engaging practice. You know, the whole idea of sitting, hitting, hitting a bunch of balls from one place around the chipping green. I mean, I would go to say that's almost a total waste of time. I'd look, you know, obviously, you're still totally. still better than doing nothing, but I mean, very, <laughs> very yeah. little benefit in that. And, you know, even the drill I was doing the other day with the guy, right? So it's wedge play from 100 to 130, 140 yards. It's, it's something that wasn't good enough, but it's so hard to measure. So we were out in the golf course over five holes. We hit four shots into each green from a different yardage every time, right? So, and we hit out of the, so we did this over five holes, four per hole. So there was 20 shots. We hit eight of them from the rough and 12 of them from the fairway because he's a typical 60% fairway hitter. Cool. Okay. I like that breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. So we hit, so we changed the yardage every single time, but we hit four shots into every hole. So in hole one, we might have hit from 130, 105 from the rough. And then 120 from the right-hand side of the fairway, and then 102 from the middle of the fairway. So we're really changing the shot up now. Obviously, we're doing it out on the golf course over five holes, mm-hmm. right? We had a different pin. We had a different wind. Sorry, we had a different wind direction. Right. We had a different pin location. We had a different elevation change, and we also had different green surface, i.e., you know, sloping away from you, all that stuff. So we create variability. So we did that over five holes. So we had 20 shots. And we were able to get a sample of his average proximity from the hole. So the average distance of all the wedge shots was 115 yards, approximately, because mm-hmm. they're all between 100 and 130, right? So 115 yards, 5% of that is right around six yards. Mm-hmm. So his average on this given day was like 7.2 yards. Now, some of the shots are tough. You've got a tight pin, you're out of the rough, you're downwind. And, you know, a couple of the shots, he hit a pretty decent shot, but the green was spinning and it's gone back to 30 feet. But that's golf. So he's right. able to do that over five holes. It took one hour. It was very engaging, um, but you can get a lot out of it. You know, yeah. we spend so much time on, with this area of the game. How do you measure if you're getting better with your wedge play? You hit balls in the range and you think it's purely your technique. Well, it's not, mm. you know, Man. so it's just, it just useful. Yeah. I love, I love the way you're right. I almost, uh, not to disc, my coaches were amazing growing up, but I wish you kind of had a, had, had a, we're talking to me as a junior player. Cause I love the way you're breaking it <laughs> down. Cause I mean, it's how, how many junior players it's interesting when you're, so when, I was at the golf course the other day and I saw some kids practicing, just playing around. There's this 11 year old kid and he was just, he was, he was dropping the ball anywhere. He was hitting shots anywhere and he was hitting good little chip shots and like good putts and he was having fun with it. Um, and I could tell like, he, I mean, if he's not doing it for any specific reason to get, get the same results you're getting out of it, but he's having fun with it. And, and the, the practice you're talking about is a lot of fun. Um, but then for some reason, when kids get to like 13, 14, 15, especially now in the age of what I call the Instagram golfers, YouTube golfers, yeah. we only want to make our <laughs> look 
biomechanically pretty. And it's like, yeah. And I, I've seen so many 13 to eight and I'm one of them. I was, I was one of them 13 to 18 year old kids that just pound ball. I mean, even at the NCAA level, you see it professional level. I'm sure you see it yeah. too. Just guys who just sit there and pound balls all day working on technique. Um, I mean, uh, it's uh, it's it's wild to to it just doesn't like when you, when you hit balls all day it it takes your confidence away. I I've only heard of certain stories at the highest level like a Martin Keimer or an Alex Noren guys that have like they sit on the range for like allegedly through stories like for eight hours a day working on technique. But um, it's you, you have to think guys like Tiger, guys like Rory, they're they're mixing up their practice a lot. Um, they're they're yeah, playing around, you know. Um, yeah. Even one thing that actually has helped my game dramatically before I warm up on, on the range, um, I never hit one of the same shots. So I'll, I'll hit like a 20 yard pitch shot to start and then maybe a 70 yard shot and then a 30 yard shot to different locations, different areas. And I'm always getting different sight lines. Um, I'll then move up to an eight iron and then to like a four iron, then down a lot. Of, I mean, it's a bit, bit of a different way to practice, but um, by the time I, I go to play, I probably hit about half as many balls as the typical just ball pounding kind of, kind of player. But I yeah. feel like I've already been in the mode of like getting ready mentally for a shot. Cause I take a little bit of time before I clean my club. Um, I've already gone through my routine about 15, 20 times and I'm kind of ready, you know? Yeah. You're ready for the inevitable chaos of golf course. You know, it's not going to be yeah. the perfect live fix iron all the time. No, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. No, I, I love it. I, I've give, I give drills to my guys even warming up that if they're hitting any given club is three shots. So you pick a target, let's say it's 150 yards and you're going to use a nine iron, right? So you aim at the target, but your only intention is to miss it left of the target. Hmm. So you got to do what you have to do to miss it left. Be that feeling yourself pulling it, feeling yourself shutting the club face, doing whatever you can to miss it left. Okay. Then you hit the same shot to the same target and you have to do it. You have to miss it right. Figure out how you miss it right. Now you can't cheat it by aiming right. You still have to aim at the target. Okay. So you have to subconsciously push it. So it just makes you a great awareness of the club face and what the ball is actually doing. Mm-hmm. And then the third and final shot with that club is just do whatever you got to do. Try and stiff the shot. Mm-hmm. So quite often what happens is whenever the guy tries to miss the first shot left, it might go 25 yards left because they purposely like shut the club face down. They've swung left. They've kind of made a sort of a hook motion. They've kind of got the ball curving in the air as much as possible with a nine iron. Right. So they're like, oh, well, you know, that, that's not very good as far as a functional golf shot, but it's what they're still intending to do. So their intention is quite clear. And then they go to the one where they aim at the target and they're trying to hit it right at the target. And they try pretty hard to miss the target right. And they hit it like two yards right of the target. Mm. And then they're like, oh, okay. So then the next one, they sort of know, well, hang on, I need to kind of feel like I'm fading this out to the right. I'm, I'm trying to hold it off a little bit to have full control of the golf ball. Right. Three shots takes about a minute and a half, 30 seconds a shot. And you can just achieve quite a lot out of it because guys get bored in the range really quickly, including me. I was one of them. Yeah. I know. Like, it's funny. Like my, my two brothers, they can, Cam specifically can sit on the range for five hours. Like I've seen him do it. Yeah. I'm working on one technique. <laughs> I, 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 I can't do that. Yeah. I mean, part of it comes from, I'm, I'm a musician too. So like part of it comes from just like a musical brain. Like you're always kind of thinking about different patterns and different things and yeah. creatively more open to different ideas, but uh, you have to keep it fun. I think that's the big thing with practice and, but fun and yeah. measured. I think that'd be like the two conclusions I've been kind of getting out of this. If you're, if you're, if you're having fun and it's measured in a way where it's like there's yeah. consequences, kind of like what you said, um, that's the best way to practice. Um, and I mean, absolutely, but 
it then just puts you're, you in kind of the the experience of what you're going to experience in a golf uh, on the golf course and determine a situation more often than not. Um, cause I think that's, that's, the, that's the biggest thing is just like, are you, do, do you feel ready? A bit of an interesting parallel. I actually, we talk about mixed martial arts a lot on this podcast, um, which is a total different array okay. of sport. But the reason we talk about it is because there's six or seven different disciplines um, that work all together to create a UFC fighter. And, and the one story I was listening to earlier was um, Henry Cejudo, who's one of the champions. He would actually simulate what it's like to go on a walk up to a fight before the cage about five times in his training camp before he actually went into the cage and fought. Um, and it's kind of a similar parallel. It's like a world champion. I think what, what, what they do better than, than someone who's just like your, your, maybe your average tour player or someone who doesn't quite make it to the next level, they just feel comfortable in their skin at the, at the time when they need most. Um, and it's, yeah. it's interesting, like going on a bit of a rant here, but I mean, I, I've heard a lot of players say, when you get to the high le- highest level, it's just like, oh, that guy just played right at the best time. He just he just found a way to, to to get lucky at the right time. But I always argue back and be like, maybe maybe he actually has this way of channeling it when it's when it's time. Because realistically, at at the professional level, I'm sure you felt it. You don't have a ton of time to get to the next level. Like you're like a year or two, and then and then it's either you're going or you're not. Um, yeah, exactly. So, you know, like it's exactly. It's quick. Um, so man, I, another Sorry, bit of an, yeah, I'm sure. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't, I can't comment on it cause I never went through it, but, um, but it's, it's real quick. Yeah, <laughs> so man, curious, you're, you're working with, uh, um, I, I'm not sure if you're working with him hand in hand, but you're working under his systems, Carl Morris. Um, yeah. that's the name, right? So Carl, Moore, I was reading up a bit on him. Like, I mean, I couldn't believe the people he's worked with like Darren Clark, Louis Eustace and Graham McDowell. Um, I think I also saw like Harry Ellis, Ryan Fox. Was it Harry Ellis? Yeah. Is that the name? Yeah, Harry, Harry Ellis. Yeah, he won yeah. the British Army last year. Yeah, two years yeah. ago. So one thing, um, I guess, first question, just a general question: What's it like working with him? What have you learned from from Carl Morris? So I, I've done his, I've done his uh, certification, um, which is, you know, he did three days of pretty intense stuff, and then you write papers and. And all that stuff. So it's basically everything about the mental game, understanding where to put our attention in the right place, mm-hmm. basically how your mind and brain works for golf. You know, right? You're, to summarize it, it, we'll keep this. I had to summarize it in one statement. You know, your mind can either be somewhere useful or useless, and it's mm-hmm. just managing that. You know, and people, we all try to control our thinking and need to be thinking this way. Well, you can't control your thinking; you can just manage it. You mm-hmm. know. So it's, it's just figuring out the best way of approaching it for you. And it's been very, very useful. You know, the stuff I know now, um, it's kind of funny. I just have sort of questioned myself to the extent of the stuff I know now, would that help me play better? Or would I have way too much information in my head right now to play well? Because <laughs> some sure. people say to play good golf, you just need like a couple of little things and you just go with it. So yeah, I could look at it from both ways, but um, yeah, it's been great. Card's been it's been amazing. Um, obviously during the lockdown and stuff, tough times for the world, but it's been useful to speak to guys like him and another guy I really look up to is Dave Allred. I don't know if you've ever came across him. I'll look him up. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's the pressure principle. So it's everything about training, the ugly zone, the learning zone, ten thousand deliberate hours, constantly stretching yourself beyond your present abilities, and you know I, I really admire him. I spent a bit of time with him in 2015 as well, so I've learned a lot from him. So just very much, um, very much just trying to figure out my way to help people by 
essentially using a lot of uh, stuff from other people and combining it to my way, you know, and what I think is relevant for helping someone improve and mm. essentially performing when it matters most because that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, one uh, yeah. one little point I saw um, from, by the way, this is opening up my mind to like, I'm actually curious to look into Carl Morris's certifications and and for my brother. Yeah. Uh, it sounds, it sounds, we have certifications on the biomechanics side, but uh, our yeah. mental game side goes as far as like reading Bob Rutella. We were yeah, talking about Bob, you know, Maybe, I love Bob yeah. stuff. Um, Bob Paul knows what you're thinking. Yeah. So simple. <laughs> the mental game, de- yeah, but the mental game develops, right? I mean, just curious, by the way, I saw one quote, uh, Graham McDowell, he said on it, um, the red dot method. What's the red yeah. dot method? What is that? So it's basically putting your attention. And so he used that. It was actually Lou Eustace. He won the 2010. Okay, maybe you wrong. That was probably because he was, yeah, Lou yeah. Eustace was above. Okay. Yeah. So basically he was using the red dot as a trigger to channel his thoughts to whatever he was thinking about. So it was useful thoughts that week. So he had it on his glove and every time he looked down on it, and it was only that week because that week it was, it caught his attention. If he had to kept the red dot in his glove constantly, it becomes subconscious. You don't even notice it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm yeah, wearing no, this sure. and, yeah. and before you know it, you don't realize you're wearing it, but the first few days you're wearing it. So you're constantly like, Oh yeah. Yeah. So he noticed it and he was able to channel his thoughts to an appropriate place. And obviously it's a great story. He went and won the major by 10 shots or he had shots or whatever it was, but um, yeah, yeah, it, it worked for him. Put it like that. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a very, uh, like, uh, I have a, do you know what like vision boards are? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love all this vision, visualization stuff. I'm actually, I'm big into meditation myself. I've done a, cool. so I'm a, medita- I've done a meditation certification to be a teacher. Whoa. I didn't so, know. Um, yeah, it's, it's useful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, meditation was a huge, uh, I actually found meditation after golf. There's so many things I found after golf where I'm like, oh, I wish I found that during. Yeah, um, but what did it, the part, but, was it the parasites of information or something? It might have held. You might have been too many thoughts. That's what I think. Yeah, and I mean, some I I realized too. I wasn't ever meant to be a professional golfer, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the uh, meditation has been huge, and uh, the vision board too is just like it's a it's right outside my door. So every time I walk out of my room in the morning, it's right there. Um, but, yeah. Uh, no man, I I think um like to kind of sum it up, it's just kind of like finding finding the right tools that work for you, and based on based on just like again, it's very, I, I hate generalizing the mental game and, and, and the stuff that you work through because there's hours and hours spent getting these certifications, understanding all these different pieces to properly train mm-hmm. someone. Um, but I mean, it's kind of just finding what are your dark spots? What are the things that you really suck at that can affect you when the time is needed and, and creating tools and, and strategies so that you're in a flow state um, and you're constantly kind of, exactly. I mean, getting back to that flow state because we always we, we all know what it's like feeling at your best. I, rem- I remember playing my best round ever was 64 um, at, a, at, a, at a golf course. And, and that, that day just felt like a flow state. Like it was, it was just flowing yeah. all day. Um, and that's the biggest thing to find. I mean, so for you, man, I mean, yeah. if, uh, if you were like, again, I hate, I almost hate asking this question. Maybe it's like, if you were to tell a 13 year old who's getting into the game, what would you say are just some core things to work on if they're, if they're a young player and uh, they're just getting into the game and they want to get better? Tough question to ask. I mean, it's, it's a very general question. Yeah. 13-year-old, um, well, uh, two things spring to mind, right? First thing I would say is tee it high and let it fly. Hit it hard. Hit it very, very hard. Yeah. Hit it like Bryson. Hit it as far as you can because <laughs> – 
getting speed speed in the game is is I don't want to say essential because it's not. There's a lot of guys do well, average hitters, but it's definitely an advantage. I buy into very much the decade system that obviously, you know, you want to be hitting it somewhat straight. It's no good playing from the trees all day, but length is an advantage. Hit it hard, get after it, get in the gym, do what you can. Well, maybe not at 13, you don't want you pounding weights, but <laughs> do what you can to, uh, you know, hit the ball. Further. But you know what, um, on, on the athletic side, how many good players have you seen that were at athletes in other sports? Right. Yeah. I was for that. And I, and I wish I was like, I, 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 and I hit the ball like 280 and at an NCAA level, forget it. Like that's not far enough. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I was, I was quite short when I started in college and I put on quite a bit of length with the structured plan. We were trying to gain three mile an hour club head speed every year. Wow. And yeah, I don't think I quite ever achieved 12 mile an hour club head speed, which was the goal over four years, but I gained like nine mile an hour club head speed with, a more upward attack angle and a less spinning driver, which all contributed to like 20 more yards in the air, which made a massive difference to my game. Mm. But point two, I think um, it's just dealing with nerves, you know? We're all, um, you know, nerves are, they're just a sign you're engaged. You've got to learn to embrace them. You know, if you're stressed by nerves, your mind will find reasons you're unprepared. So I think we all grew up sort of not embracing nerves, not accepting what they are. And, and you you know, you really got to, you really got to go with them and you got to be tough and you got to get through them and you got to allow yourself to be nervous and, and just, just get on with it as best you can. You know, um, I think a lot of, a lot of guys sort of, they don't really embrace being nervous. Mm. They limit themselves, you know? Yeah. And I did that to a certain extent as well. You know, nobody's, that definitely limited me in, in my progression, but, um, mm. over time you keep learning and you really got to embrace them because it's, uh, we hold ourselves back so much mentally. You know, you got to train your mind and your brain if you really want to achieve what you set out to achieve in this game. It's, um, if you're not careful, your mind will hold you back. Yeah, absolutely, man. Dude, those are great points. Um, we'll leave it there, man. I mean, uh, I guess uh, any, any like, where, where are you going in the future? Like, what's the next step? And, and where also, too, if you want to give yourself a plug, where can we find you on Instagram, on online? Let us know. Yeah, my Instagram, um, at point one performance. Um, yeah, hit me up, follow me, send me a message, no problem. Happy to help anyone. Uh, so the next, the European tour schedules out. I'm actually speaking to Craig, uh, which is the guy caddy for uh, Craig Howie. He's a young Scottish player. Um, hopefully, uh, he's doing it. He's a fantastic player. So hopefully, um, big things are coming from him. But um, a couple of tournaments in Austria in July. So we're actually just waiting. Uh, we're waiting today on announcements about you know quarantine. And, flying to Austria and, and, and all these things, you know, get in the hotel. Do we all have to stay in like, you know, like a prison style place? Do we all have to like be in the same hotel and all yeah. this stuff? So we're, it's all on the world's uncertain place right now. So we're just waiting on that all coming through. So yeah, it's, um, hopefully it all works out, but I'm, I'm buzzing to get back on the road and get back out and tour and all that good stuff, you know? So, yeah, man, I, I feel that. I mean, not as much cause I'm not in the traveling state, but you know what though? Um, it kind of relates. Uh, I'm going to tie it up in a perfect bow. Um, I was reading uh, a, a, an article that Carl Morris put out. I think it was on June 8th and uh, just like going through a site. And he said, some of the greatest creativity in human history has followed some of the very darkest times. There will be some yeah. terrible commercial losses going forward, but there will also be some great opportunities to the mind, which is open to possibility. And I, I love that. Yeah. Like, I think it's, it's so true. I keep saying it's my girlfriend. I say it's a, friends around me. I'm like, there is special stuff that happens during these times. Like it's not, 
It's not, yep. it's not like we're all inside watching Netflix and eating pizza all day. We're like, there, there are people that are yeah. themselves. So it's either like hop on that development train or just do, do what you do. But I mean, it's, it could be a really special time too. And I keep saying that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's given me an opportunity to reset. And obviously I haven't been in, I've been in the one place now for four months, which yeah. is very, which doesn't happen often, but um, it's been good, you know, we sort of reset and read some books and reassess life. I think, you know, life was moving pretty quick and um, it's, um, it's been good. It's been good. It's definitely, there's definitely positives to the situation, obviously not in the, the real sense, but as a self-development yeah. sense, it's, yeah, yeah I mean, it's obviously not to underplay what's going on politically, socially, and uh, and health-wise. But I mean, I think if you are lucky to be healthy, then just focus on that. So, man, thanks so much for joining the podcast. We'll leave it there and uh, be well. Yeah, no there. problem. Yeah. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Yeah.